our scripture this morning will come from Second Chronicles, chapter 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled with them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them, for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord God, that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all around. Even Micah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asura. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it in the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. This is the blessed word of our Lord. So good to see you here on this first Sunday in January of 2017. We're beginning a new series today called Habits. And this series is based on a book, uh, or I guess comes from a book that has had a, a profound impact on my life. It is not a Christian book. It is a book written uh, by Stephen Covey, who was actually a Mormon. Covey has passed, but was actually uh, a Mormon. Uh, but the book really has uh, affected how I, I lead and live and uh, in, in the habits that it espouses. 
And so uh, it'll be a five-part series. It'll come from uh, five of those seven habits. And this morning we're talking about beginning with the end in mind. And as we are, we find ourselves uh, under the, uh, 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 or looking at King Asa. King Asa was king of Judah, uh, Judah, the kingdom in the south. And uh, Asa becomes king at a very difficult time when things are unraveling in Judah. It is a tough, tough time to be king. As a matter of fact, uh, God raises up a prophet by the name of Azariah. Azariah is raised up by God, has a message to communicate to King Asa. And in that message, Azariah says, if you keep going as you are, this is how things are going to be. Uh, in, in those times, there was no peace to him. Uh, great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces, nation crushed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. So God says to King Asa through the prophet Azariah, if you do nothing, if you do nothing, this is what is going to happen. Someone has said, you are never standing still. You're either moving forward or you are moving backward, but you are never standing still. I think I agree with that. And some of you are at a place in your life this morning that if you do nothing, if you just decide that this is the year you'll do nothing, you're going to be in a bad place come December of 2017. This message will be used by God as Azariah's message to Asa to really stick a rock in your shoe and say, I must do something. We as a family must do something. So what is it that you must do? Well, uh, the prophet speaks to Azariah uh, or through as the prophet Azariah speaks to Asa and I love how Asa responds. Some of you will respond like this today. As soon as Asa heard these words, as soon as Asa heard these words, he did not delay. He did not wait. He responded. He took courage and put away the detestable idols. I'm going to give you, I seldom do this, but I think they come straight from scripture, three steps to a godly 2017, three steps to the end of 2017 being quite different for you than 2016. Step one is to put away idols. He took courage and he put away idols in order to remove idols, you will have to take courage. It is hard. Idolatry removal is hard work. Well, what are idols? I think we have a tendency to think of things made of wood or stone or metal when we think of idols. But in our day, idols can be really good things. You can worship your wife or worship your husband. 
You can worship children. You can worship sports. You can worship your work. You can worship success. You can worship many things that are good things. When they become God, they become an idol to you. And when that happens, your worship of those things will replace the worship of God and you will become so centered on those things that unless you have them, you will not be satisfied. Tim Keller in his work, Counterfeit Gods, uh, says this. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol. Something you are actually worshiping. So how are idols described? Uh, Here he removed the detestable idols. That means disgusting or filthy It is difficult for us to view idols that way, I think, because good things just don't seem to be disgusting or filthy. I just finished reading a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in this book, Brennan Manning shares the experience of being in an alcohol treatment facility He says, one of my indelible memories goes back to April of 1975 when I was a patient at an alcohol rehab center in a small town north of Minneapolis. The leader, I'll read parts of this, his name was Sean. And a new man had joined the group that day by the name of Max. He said... Sean directed Max to sit on the hot seat in the center of the U-shaped group. A small, diminutive man, Max was a nominal Christian, married with five children, owner and president of his company, wealthy, affable, and gifted with remarkable poise. How long have you been drinking like a pig, Max? Sean began the interrogation. Max winced. That's quite unfair. We shall see. I want to get into your drinking history. How much booze per day? Max relit his corncob pipe. I have two Marys with the men before lunch and twin Martins after the office closes at five. Then, what are Marys and Martins? Uh, Sean interrupts. Max describes what those are. The wife likes to drink before dinner as he goes on through. A total of eight drinks a day, Max, Sean inquired. Absolutely right. Not a drop more, not a drop less. You're a liar. Unruffled, Max replied. I'll pretend I didn't hear that. I've been in business for 20 odd years and built my reputation on veracity, not mendacity. People know my word is my bond. Ever hide a bottle in your house? Asked Benjamin, a Navajo Indian from New Mexico. Don't be ridiculous. I've got a bar in my living room. Nothing personal, Sean. Max felt he had regained control. He was smiling again. Do you keep any booze in the garage, Max? Naturally, I have to replenish the stock. A man in my profession does a lot of entertaining at home. 
the executive swagger had returned. How many bottles in the garage? I really don't know the actual count offhand. I would say two cases of Smirnoff vodka, a case of beef eater gin, a few bottles of bourbon and scotch, and a bevy of liquors. The interrogation continued for another 20 minutes. Max fudged and hedged, minimized, rationalized, and justified his drinking pattern. Finally hemmed in by relentless cross-examination, he admitted he kept a bottle of vodka in the nightstand, a bottle of gin in the suitcase for travel purpose, another in his bathroom cabinet for medicinal purposes, and three more at the office for, for entertaining clients. He squirmed occasionally but never lost his veneer of confidence. No need to get vindictive, Charlie Max said to a, a man who called him out. Remember the image in John's gospel about the speck in your brother's eye and the two before in your own? And the other one in Matthew about the pot calling the kettle black. By the way, that's not in the Bible. And Brennan Manning said he felt he should tell him that, but he refrained. So Sean asked for a phone, and when he did, he called the local bartender. The bartender told them everything Max drank, and every day he did it. Max leapt to his feet, raising his right hand defiantly. He unleashed a stream of profanity worthy of a stevedore. He attacked Sean's ancestry, impugned Charlie's legitimacy and the whole unit's integrity. He clawed at the sofa and spat on the rug. And then he regained his composure. Have you ever been a kind to one of your kids, Fred asked. Glad you brought that up, Fred. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. He talked about that. I didn't ask you that. At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to one of his kids. I'm 62 years old and I can vouch for it. Now give us a specific example. A long pause ensued. Finally, well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old last Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. Where did it happen? What were the circumstances? Wait one minute, Max's voice rose in anger. I told you I don't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling. They brought the phone into the room again and called Max's wife. A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. It, Seems like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter, Debbie, wanted a pair, remember this is in the 70s, wanted a pair of earth shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. That is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the cork and bottle. That's a tavern a few miles from our house and told Debbie he would be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero, so Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one would get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon. Silence. Yes? The sound of heavy breathing crossed the recreation room. Her voice grew faint. She was crying. 
My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. Remember, he went in at three. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand. She will be deaf for the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to his feet, making jerky, uncoordinated movements. His glasses flew to the right, his pipe to the left. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Sean stood up and said softly, let's split. 24 recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed the eight-step stairwell. We turned left, gathered along the railing on the upper split level, and looked down. No man will ever forget what he saw that day, the 24th of April at exactly high noon. Max was still in his doggy position. His sobs had soared to shrieks. Sean approached him pressed his foot against his rib cage and pushed. Max rolled over on his back. You unspeakable slime, Sean roared. There's the door on your right and the window on your left. Take whichever is fastest. Get out of here before I throw up. I am not running a rehab for liars. Manning goes on to say that Max made it. As a matter of fact, he said, I'd walk by his room and see him in the Bible. And he became an encouragement to the rest of us. Getting rid of idols is no easy task. It isn't easy. And it's unbelievable what some of you are doing to deny they exist. Your own rationalization, your own justification of your sin, Keller again says an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any discretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. So I ask you, what is disgusting in your life? Maybe it has cost you your marriage, your family's respect, your self-respect, and you continue to view it as morally acceptable or even as a positive part of your life. 
the first thing they did was to tear down idols, put away idols. But I would say to you, if you put away idols without the second step, you'll find another idol. John Calvin says, our sinful natures are idol factories. We'll find something or someone to worship if it isn't God. So what is step two? Rely on God's sacrifice. Notice what Asa did. He took down the idols. They put them away. Secondly, same verse, verse eight, he repaired the altar. I find that interesting that he repaired the altar. This, this place, uh, what was the altar? We must get the picture in our minds. It stood outside the temple uh, at the front of the vestibule of the temple. And just in case you have maybe a picture of like this space up here, it was nothing of the sort. The altar was 30 by 30 by 18 feet. So 30 feet wide, uh, 30 feet deep, 18 feet tall. It was made of bronze uh, so that when the sun uh, shone on the altar as you approached the temple, the thing you would most likely notice first would be the sun shining on the altar. So what was the point of the altar? The word altar itself means slaughter. It means slaughter. The point of the altar was sacrifice. And on that altars, we'll see in a moment, sacrifices were offered for the sins of the people. Why? God initiated this. This was God's doing. It was God's call. Why did he do it? Because there was believed to be life in the blood of the animal. And when that animal, innocent of any sin itself, when that animal's blood was offered, the life in the blood of the animal was believed to atone for. That word means cover the sin of the human being for whom the sacrifice was made. And so Asa knew. Isn't it interesting? He's king. Political reform, no. Uh, maybe enact some new laws, pass some new laws, no. No, we've got to get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is a sinful heart. And since the heart of the problem is a sinful heart, what we're going to do is to repair the altar. First thing, that's our job. Well, some of you hear that, and I think your tendency might be to think, well, what do I do? Well, that would be all well and good if Christ hadn't come and died on the cross. You see, no longer do we offer blood animal sacrifices, do we? So, so what do we do? Some of you are sitting here and your addiction is all over you right now. Like you are so eaten up with it. So what do you do? How do you deal what does it mean to repair the altar? What does it mean to rely on God's sacrifices? Thankfully, the writer of Hebrews doesn't leave us hanging. So you have to think here. You have to tune in right now and be focused if you are going to get this. Hebrews 13, 10 through 14. We have an altar. We have an altar. 
All right, that's us. That's you and me today. From which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who serve the Levites, who serve the tent or the tabernacle, the temple, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. All right, so you've got to hang with me for a moment in order to get this. When they were bring a lamb in to sacrifice that lamb, they would take the blood and pour it over that large bronze altar. And then they would take that lamb's body outside of the city walls and burn its remains. Outside the city walls. Why? Because the body represented the sin. The body represented the sin. The blood appeased the holy God and God accepted the blood as a sacrifice, but the body represented the sin. Now look at this, two tiny little words, so Jesus, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, outside the city, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let me unpack this for you. What is he saying? All right. Asa repaired this massive altar and we discover that they sacrificed 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep on that altar. That's a lot of blood. And they took the bodies of those outside the city gate. So what did Jesus do? When Jesus died, the old songwriter got this part right. On a hill where? Far away from where? The city. Outside the gate. I've been there to where the place where they commemorate the crucifixion of Christ. Outside the city gate, Jesus died. Now you say, what is the significance of that? The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. All right, so that means we walk outside of that massive walled city of Jerusalem, 12 gates, we walk outside of those gates to the cross. Why? Let's talk about the cross for a moment. The cross was brutal. It was horrific. If Jesus had lived today and it died today, he would have died in an electric chair. It was the capital punishment of the day. Could you imagine if you go into work tomorrow and you're wearing a necklace and on your necklace is an electric chair? You go to the tattoo parlor And you say, put an electric chair right here. They're going to look at you as if you are absurd. Why? How morbid. 
You see, 2,000 years removed from the death of Christ, the cross has become a thing that we make uh, necklaces out of and bracelets and and all kinds of, of wonderful things, but not in that day. It was the electric chair of Jesus' day. And when you go outside of the city and you say, I follow the Christ who died on this cross, Hebrews says you bear the reproach. Do you know what it means, teenager? It means you may not be the most popular kid in school. It means if people really think about what you're doing, they're not going to think you've really got it all that together. It means that the hallmark of your faith is a stripped, naked, beaten beyond recognition, crown of thorns pushed down over his head, Christ. And you'll gladly bear his reproach. That's what it means to rely on God's sacrifice. You say, wow, Jerry, it's, it's January 1. You're really drumming up business today. I mean, this is going to get people in by the droves. I came here hoping to feel a tad better about myself. I do not. You can't grip this cross and walk away with the view of self that says, Look at me. That's why the old songwriter would say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. I cling. I'm reading a little book right now by Watchman Nee called The Normal Christian Life. Here's what he says. Lord, I do not know fully what the value of the blood is, but I know that the blood has satisfied thee. So the blood is enough for me. And it is my only plea. When the blood of Christ, you realize its value to God that by Christ shedding it, it does away with your sin. It will become your only plea. It will become the only way you stand before him. You say, Jerry, what does that mean? Here's what it means. That on your very best day, the blood is your only plea. And on your very worst day, the blood is still your only plea. That's why another old hymn goes like this. Just as I am without one what? Plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. There is no Christian who walks in his or her faith apart from relying on the cross of Christ. Can't do it. Just as that altar God received the blood when Christ died on the cross. God received his blood. And when you trust Christ, you're trusting a reproach. 
a humiliating, defeating, devastating God hanging naked on a cross for you. There is no other religion with such a radical notion of a God who dies for its followers. So, so what do they do after that? They offer all these sacrifices, verse 12, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. They entered into a covenant. Uh, what does it mean to enter into a covenant? Uh, it means to agree. Uh, I, I happen to believe in New Year's resolutions, um, not perhaps in the very traditional way they're done, but I take stock every December. I I uh, have already made a list of books I think I should read this year. I, I, I look at my life. I think through, okay, God, what is it? What's, what's coming next? And what do you want? What, what, what's your desire for me? And I've sat down with Wendy. We've talked through some things. God, what is your desire for us? What does this year look like? This is what happened. They covenanted. Uh, this word seek is huge. I love it. It means to beat a path to. They covenanted to beat a path to God. How do you beat a path to God? Well, there are multiple ways. Being here on a Sunday morning, first Sunday of the year. That's one way to beat a path to God. You say to the kids, we're going to church today. Why? It's the first Sunday of the year. We're going to worship Christ today. You beat a path to God. You do that. For some of you, it's an early morning routine. I had someone ask me recently, Jerry, how convinced are you that your quiet time should be in the mornings? That your time with the Lord should be in the mornings? I said, as convinced as I am that you should warm up the violin before the concert, not afterward. Wow, you have your quiet time at night. Well, that'll do you great while you're sleeping. But what if in the early part of the morning you find yourself alone with your maker? That might help you during the day. Seeking him early. Whatever it looks like, you beat a path to God. For some of you, it's clear and it's obvious. The only way you're going to be able to beat a path to God is to take next steps with grace. The church, meaning with us, you, you may need to come to starting point or you need to, um, to, to join a life group. Can I say something to you? If you're in here this morning and you have an addiction, you will not handle that alone. Satan's number one tool with people who struggle with addiction isn't temptation. It is temptation when they are in isolation. It is somebody thinking, I don't need anybody else's help. That is Satan's number one tool. Convince you that you're okay, just like Max, right? His daughter is deaf the rest of his life, and in his swagger, he smokes his corncob pipe and speaks as if nothing is wrong. It is in a group. And do you know what else I've discovered? Is that often the people who need it the most are the hardest to help. Do you have you seen that? Maybe in your family. They're the hardest to help. I call it it's trying like trying to hug a porcupine. Be prepared for a little prickliness. 
because they're going to be defensive. They're going to lie about their sin or about their struggle. They're going to rationalize. They're going to blame it on somebody else. All of those kinds of things. And often when you try to help them, they're the ones who end up cutting, hurting back. Why? It's a defense mechanism. Do that. I won't have to deal with what I'm dealing with. I'll do that. And this somehow will be, it'll distract. So for you, if you're ever going to be free, you're going to do it in community with other believers who love you enough to speak the truth to you and to call you out graciously. So for you, perhaps that is your next step. Some of you need to get out of your comfort zone and go on a mission trip. You do. You need to look at 17 and go, okay, that's, that's next for me. That's what I've got to do. For others of you, it's more complex. And all I can say to you today is pray. Pray with your husband, your wife. If you're single, pray with you, uh, you know, the, the, the men or the women in your life group. Pray and say, okay, God, I, I don't really know, but there are some circumstances in my life that I know you're using. I just don't know how. And allow God to use those. I want to close with this question. It comes from premarital counseling books that I use um, uh, when I do premarital counseling with couples and it's a good question. It'll kind of stick a rock in your shoe. So let me prepare you for that. As if this whole sermon wasn't doing that already. To begin with the end in mind. That's what we're talking about today. If I could do anything and knew that God would provide all the resources and guarantee success, I would. How would you finish that? If I could do anything and knew that God would provide all the resources and guarantee success, I would. Why that question? Here's why, or that statement. It forces you to get outside of the box that you've drawn around your life. And most of us draw boxes around our lives that aren't near large enough to contain God. And it's possible that God might want to do something in and through you in 2017 that just isn't on your mind right now. It's how he works. It's how he works. If I could do anything and I knew that God would provide all the resources and guarantee success, I would. So here's what I want you to do. For some of you, it's on that connection card. My next step is you turn it in today. We follow up this week. For others of you, you need to get to your life group and you need to say, all right, I need you to pray with me about or maybe you need to call us but my encouragement is to begin with the end 
in mind. What will the end of 17 look like? Because of a decision you made this week.